Hello, welcome to the Autism Journal podcast. My name is Robin Stewart. I'm autistic and I'm the host of this podcast. And today with me are researchers Dr. Damien Milton and Professor Liz Pilicano to talk about their paper, which has just been published in the Autism Journal, about a series of seminars based on uh, Liz and Damien's work around the shaping futures together. Um, so my first question is, uh, this research is, the, a big theme of it is participatory research. What is that? <laughs> That's a very good question, Robin. Um, so participatory research is research that is carried out with or by community members rather than to, about or for them. So it's genuine collaborations between community and academic partners where the views of community members and by community members here, I mean autistic people and their allies are actually incorporated into what research gets done, how it's implemented and how the findings are interpreted and, and disseminated. I think it's um, also really important to point out that participation in the research process actually can take many different forms. And in the paper, we refer to one influential model of um, citizen involvement, which is Sherry Arnstein's letter of participation. And there are more, I think, uh, you know, complex and sophisticated models of, of citizen involvement or engagement. But this one's quite useful, I think, just to, just to think about. So what I want you to think about is a, is a ladder. Um, and the idea is that, that we move up the ladder, we get increasing degrees of participation and therefore increased power in the decision making process around research. So at the bottom rungs of the ladder, we might have community members with no power at all. So who might be, for example, the recipients of therapy. Um, and as we kind of move up that ladder towards the middle rungs, we have greater degrees of participation, which can take the form of engaging or consulting or informing. And that might be, for example, an autistic advisory group whose input may or may not affect your research. And the danger at that, that those middle rungs is that, that that type of engagement of engaging and consulting can be tokenistic in nature. Um, so it might just be all part of a tick box exercise rather than actually truly listening to people and acting on their advice. But as we move to the top rungs of the ladder, we have community participation to the extent that community members co-design and co-produce research alongside academic partners, such that community members share the decision making power with academic partners and are involved in most or all phases of the research process. So the design, the methods, the analysis, the interpretation of the results and the dissemination of them. And at the very top of the ladder, which is really the pinnacle of participatory research, is community controlled research where community partners, so in this case, autistic people, have greater say over the research than the academic partners. For me, I see research with my community partners, just like my research with my academic partners. So I consider each of them to be collaborations, trusting, authentic relationships where I value the partners for their knowledge, experience and expertise. Okay, um, Damien, so um, <coughs> I know that, well, I mean, obviously I know you're outside of this podcast, but for people that don't know, you're um, an openly autistic researcher. And I suspect that when you started researching, um, that participation was really in its infancy. Um, do you think you could uh, tell us a bit about um, maybe yeah. your experience and how things have changed? For me, uh, participatory research is primarily an ethos uh, rather than a toolkit or a prescription of some kind. 
So it's uh, rather than a how-to kind of thing, it's more as a, a way to reflect about research and how to make it more participatory. And as Liz was saying earlier, it's about ceding power from the researcher to the researched, as it were. So, um, and a big area for that is in setting the agenda for research um, and also in the interpretation of what the findings mean. Because when you get to the interpretive or theoretical level, this is going beyond the factual evidence to a, a more philosophical level. And for that to be meaningful to autistic people, it makes sense to involve them in it. Um, some years ago, a colleague of mine, uh, Mike Brecher, called it the glass subheading, um, where articles often quote autistic people, but the conclusions and interpretations are rarely written by them. Um, and so participatory research kind of turns that on its head in an ethos. So the idea is the interpretation is co-produced. It's easier said than done, though, and that's something I think we'll touch upon later. So, Liz, how did you choose the focus of the seminars? Because there were a group of seminars and uh, there was five focuses. Like, I mean, there's a lot to, to choose from participatory research as they brought. So how did you go about that? Yeah, so um, the focus of our seminars came from a study that Tony Charman and I conducted a few years back known as a future made together. And in fact, I've done a previous podcast with autism on this very um, project before. But um, just to summarise, we did a comprehensive review of UK autism research funded between 2007 and 2011, including how much was spent on autism research and what kind of research it was spent on. And we found that majority of UK research during that time focused heavily on what we call basic science, so neural and cognitive systems, genetics, other risk factors, instead of on research targeting the, immediate, the, the more immediate circumstances in which autistic people and their families find themselves. And we did, alongside that um, review, we also did a large consultation with the autistic and autism communities to understand what they thought about UK autism research and where they thought the money should be spent. Um, and community members agreed that there should be greater investment in, in research that, you know, assist, the, assist them with day-to-day -day living for those who are autistic, their family members and those who support them. So they prioritised research that would, one, identify the most effective public services, two, would establish the best way to support autistic people, and three, would understand the place of autistic people in society. So that's, that's how we came up with the themes for our seminars. They were directly suggested by the autistic community um, in the UK. Brilliant. Thank you. What a great answer. So what did you learn about empathy between autistic and non-autistic people? Because this is um, I felt that this was quite a important theme within the paper. What can you tell me about that? A common issue, I guess, was uh, working between groups, especially autistic people and researchers, as it were, is a mutual understanding of where people are coming from. And what I would describe 
um, in my own work as the double empathy problem, which many years ago I theorized um, utilizing qualitative research findings, my own lived experience and coming across the work of others. Um, because for many, well, decades, autistic writers have talked about the lack of understanding that other people showed them or in their autistic way of being. And to me, um, the double empathy problem was somewhat a critique and also broadening the theory of mind kind of theory of uh, autistic difficulties in social interaction. And for me, there is a mismatch of salience, as I've called it as well, between uh, perceptions within a given context. And so how an autistic person is perceiving a situation or making meaning out of it or finding interest in it may be quite different from a non-autistic person. And this would suggest, though, that non-autistic people would also struggle in their social interactions and empathy, as it were, for autistic people. Um, since I wrote these theories up, there's been a number of uh, more experimental studies um, in recent years, which uh, I think showing more and more this to be the case and uh, perhaps Liz can talk a bit more about that. Um, yeah, so that I mean, um, yeah, recent experimental research, both from the UK and from the US, really support Damien's double empathy position. So there are studies showing now that neurotypical people find it difficult to read autistic people's facial expressions. They find it difficult to interpret the behaviour of autistic people and they are even less willing to interact with autistic people on first impression judgments. So as Damien described, this work really suggests a lack of alignment between the minds of autistic and non-autistic people. Um, and so I think what was really great about our Shaping Autism Research seminar series um, was that it showed that it was possible for non-autistic researchers to be empathetic researchers, you know, to engage autistic people and scholars in such a way that it promotes, you know, trusting authentic relationships, that they were built on mutual respect um, and that were, you know, involving listening to and in learning from one another. This Following up on what Liz was saying, uh, for me, a full understanding of what it's like to be someone else is pretty, well, impossible. Um, yeah, better expertise in the culture and perception of others and building those relationships over time is possible. And whether it it may be a messy process, but then without making that effort, that interactional expertise is just not going to be there at all. Um, but building this expertise, ex sorry, building this expertise between different uh, points of view and all concerned in research, I think, also touches upon the need for interdisciplinary research. Um, and what was a really good 
part of this uh, seminar series was getting researchers from different disciplines all in a room together with autistic people all sharing different uh, expertise and perceptions of the issues. Um, and this is a worthwhile uh, pursuit because it builds collaborative communities of practice in research around autism rather than what Larry Arnold some years ago called the silo mentality, where you have different groups off in their own, doing their own work and uh, taking snipes at one another rather than trying to fully understand where each other is coming from. So it builds uh, understanding so autistic people also understand where researchers are coming from better. Um, those who may not be researchers themselves getting involved and so on. So it builds knowledge and um, collaboration on all sides of uh, perceiving an issue. So I think work like this is very important in the field. Okay, and then what barriers do you think that researchers perceive and experience, and those might be the same or they might be different, um, working in a participatory way with the autism community? One key issue or potential barrier that researchers might perceive and when also experience um, is around... Um, I guess, it, I guess the very involvement in research. So some scientists are very wary about getting autistic people and their allies involved in, in different parts of the scientific research process. Um, you know, scientific research, they say, is, is, is prized for being impartial, falsifiable, rigorous. And for some, the very involvement of those with a vested interest, like autistic people, their family members, potentially introduces bias into the scientific method. And one of the participants from our um, a future made together study, one of the researcher participants said, you know, autistic people and their families may not be the most appropriate people to decide where research funding should be allocated. Um, so there's this real kind of perception that, you know, they might be introducing bias into, into research. I think it's really important, however, to remember that scientists themselves are not unbiased. You know, we all approach research with prior experiences and expectations and therefore biases. Um, and, you know, that includes researchers. So I think, you know, we, we need to acknowledge those biases and value potentially different perspectives, while at the same time trying to preserve the integrity of the scientific method. One other potential barrier that has been that was put to us in our Future Made Together project was um, that some researchers perceive autistic involvement to be limited to the input of one or two individuals. Um, and I think it is always a challenge to broaden the circle as widely as possible to include you know, lots of autistic people, especially those who might have additional intellectual disabilities or and or difficulties with spoken, uh, spoken communication. But I think it can be done. Um, and I think um, developing strong partnerships with autistic-led organisations in particular and with a range of different community members, so autistic people, their family members and service providers if, if necessary, to facilitate autistic involvement and leadership in research is really important, as well as kind of mentoring um, early career researchers in participatory autism research. So I think 
those two things, developing strong partnerships with autistic-led organisations and mentoring those early career um, researchers, hopefully will kind of serve to mitigate um, this notion that, you know, it's only a few individuals who actually get to have their say. Okay, Damien, do you have anything you'd like to add? Yeah, um, on the question of uh, bias, um, I'd be in agreement with Liz that scientists will carry their own biases and uh, from their own experiences, both on what they're looking at and how they're interpreting um, especially on the more theoretical level. Um, and working in collaboration, there's a chance to offset one another's biases somewhat. So if a community member comes up with something that is unscientific, the scientist can pull that up. If the scientist comes up with something which is uh, lacking some objectivity for, and the community members disagree, then this is an issue which needs more reflection and uh, looking back on again. So um, I think one of the barriers though for participatory research is because there's no one way to do it, it can be a messy and difficult process and different every time as it were. Um, and that can be quite unsettling for researchers, uh, especially those who um, different methods are used to try and standardise or make uh, data comparable and reliable and so on. Um, so uh, one priority can pull against another within the research process. But just because it's a difficult thing to do shouldn't doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing more of it. Um, another barrier I would say is uh, from the autistic side is not everyone wants to be a researcher or even that much of an active participant in research. So there needs to be different uh, levels of participation and access to research and inclusion into the process. So another area which is very important is uh, making research more open access and accessible for autistic people to read and understand. Uh, and um, I would say, though, that when efforts are made, it makes a big difference. Um, and, that, and the final barrier for me is around the funding and commissioning of research. Um, I very rarely see participation in setting up of collaborative uh, communities of practice as a priority for those um, setting the research agenda in terms of funding. And I think Liz and colleagues' previous work on their report showed where the money was going in terms of research was quite unbalanced. And so what I would argue for is more investment in participatory research, not less investment in other areas, as that report said, but just more investment where possible in uh, this kind of work. So that 
is a barrier which I think is quite a, an important one to work towards changing in the UK and internationally. I think another real barrier for doing participatory autism research is, is acknowledging that you know, there are different degrees of power between researchers and, and community members, such that community members, you know, are less, have, have less or perceived to have less power in, in the research process than, than researchers. And I think researchers need to take extra steps to ensure that they reduce those power differentials between researchers and community members. And that, that um, you know, we need to make sure that people can be heard and that their, their views are taken seriously. Um, we need to make sure that we, you know, open up dialogue that isn't constrained by a particular, you know, predefined research question, that we're open to, you know, lots of different perspectives and, um, and that we also um, make extra efforts to meet people outside traditional research environments where autistic people might be more comfortable and more likely to um, tell us their views and experiences. So if you're, uh, if you're a researcher listening to this podcast and you want to be more participatory, how could you do that? This is simple, I think. If we really want to do research that is more relevant to the people it directly affects, then we as researchers need to start talking to autistic people as if they matter, talk to, you know, taking what they say seriously. Only then can we develop the kind of deep and sustainable relationships that are necessary for successful research collaborations or participatory autism research. So I guess what I would say is the next time you start a research project, make sure that your research questions come from those conversations, not just from the academic research literature. And if people are wondering, like, how to start those conversations, how could they do that? That's like, it's question. not like you can, it's not like you can walk into the street with a big sign that says, if you're autistic, come and speak to me. <laughs> I mean, you could, but I think people might not necessarily speak to you. What researchers can do is firstly reflect on their own practice and um, what they're doing and what they could do more to uh, engage the autistic community and work in a participatory way. Uh, sometimes researchers are scared of doing this or haven't done this before, um, but taking a step in this direction, even a very small step, can be beneficial. In terms of uh, where to find autistic people, in a sense, um, and I think this is a an issue for researchers is uh, recruitment for researchers um, because there's been, um, I would say, a fair amount of distrust in research within the community built up over time and partly through poor experiences of the research process, whether that would be filling in a survey that didn't make sense or you felt we're asking the wrong questions to um, going to have brain scans and not being given the results afterwards you know there's lots of these stories that go around the community so um, in order to build trust back up one needs to work with that community that means going to autistic led events or community events um, 
talking to people, making an effort. You can do that online. There's a lot of autistic people and groups on social media. Um, just taking a step in that direction. And rather than just saying, I'm doing a study and I'm looking for participants, um, rather than that being your opening line, you might actually want to start talking to people as a human being first and saying, I'm a researcher and I'm interested in autism. Can I join your group discussions or something? Um, so rather than rushing in there, you know, um, build some rapport because otherwise you're going to have a lack of participants for your study anyway. Um, I think researchers in this field will often find quite a difficulty in finding participants and it's partly because they're not engaging in this way. Well, I think that's a great answer. Thank you, Damien. Um, so one thing I noticed about social media and I imagine that if the researchers listening to this and they're quite new to talking to actually autistic people. Um, I think, and I don't think that this is just autism related. I think that it happens across social media, but particularly with platforms like Twitter, where you've got a limited um, character count. I know that it's longer than it used to be, but it's still kind of limited. I think that sometimes autistic people, and I think this can happen in, in other groups as well, um, but sometimes researchers might be concerned that they'll say the wrong thing and then they'll sort of be told off by all these different people on Twitter when they were really trying to do the right thing or any other social media platform. Um, what, what well, are it's steps? a learning process. <laughs> it can be a scary one. And I think, yes, Pete, People can be scared of saying the wrong thing, but be honest, say, be your first line can be, I'm scared of saying the wrong thing. I'm here to learn. You know, there's ways of being humble and approaching a situation. And if, I mean, some people will always perhaps take things the wrong way and be rude. And I think on Twitter, uh, the double empathy problem seems to be accentuated <laughs> tenfold <laughs> by the medium. But the um, I think there are positives to it as well. Um, and obviously, not all autistic people are going to be using Twitter or Facebook or other kind of social media platforms. Um, but then there are in-person events one can attend. Uh, there's um, working collaboratively, say, with a school or um, uh, an adult supported housing uh, system or so on. And if you're doing research in these uh, areas, you've got um, a particular group of people you're working with. And rather than researching them from afar, uh, researching with them and collaborating with them is a, a different way of going about it and a, one which may produce better results. Brilliant answer. Thank you, Damien. So then my last question, um, and Damien, you might want to answer this. If you're an autistic person listening to this podcast and you want to be more involved with participatory research, how could you go about it? 
getting involved with a a network which um, I chair and which is called the Participatory Autism Research Collective or PARC for short. And we have a website which is uh, PARC with a C um, autism.co.uk so it's quite easy to find. Um, and this network is autistic led, but it's to promote participatory research in the field and to share such work around and to be a critical voice, I guess, on um, research which uh, we may disagree with for various reasons. Um, and so this network is a way for people to get involved. Uh, we hold free events and meetings and have that online presence as well. Um, there are other ways of getting involved. Uh, Autistica run a network called the Discover Network. Um, so for more uh, base science work, I think um, that may be a network people would like to look into. Um, podcasts like this um, and looking into uh, what's available from researchers um, and also doing courses in various kinds that doesn't necessarily mean doing a degree or signing up to an expensive course like that but there's increasing numbers of uh, online free courses run by universities and so on. Um, I've been involved with one myself with the University of Kent. So things like this can help build understanding of what researchers do. So building understanding um, of the autistic community, but also autistic people having better access to the knowledge produced by researchers. So it's kind of that two-way process. Um, but the Park Network helps one do that because you're connecting with other autistic people interested in this area and wanting to get involved. Um, so look us up and uh, involved. <laughs> so I now work in Australia and here we have uh, a cooperative research centre for autism which is a multi-site centre involving lots and lots of different people and they run some fantastic initiatives. Um, one is called a research academy, one is called Future Leaders where, where which involve exclusively autistic people um, who are really keen to get um, involved in research, to learn more about the research process and, and become exactly future leaders in, in in research. Um, so there are other things that are going on outside of um, the UK and I'm sure there are other initiatives in the US that um, people could plug into as well. So. Brilliant, thank you. Well thank you Professor Liz Pilicano and uh, Dr Damien Milton. I'm Robin Stewart and you've been listening to the Autism Journal podcast. Thank you so much Robin and can I just say a huge thanks to all of our co-authors, particularly the wonderful Sue Fletcher Watson who um, who was first author on the, on the paper that we were talking about. Um, all, of, all of the authors had fantastic input into this paper and um, it's such a privilege, it's been such a privilege to be involved in this, in, in the seminar 
series, but also um, in this paper. So thanks to everyone. Thanks very much for listening to the Autism Podcast. You can read Liz and Damien's paper at journals.sagepub.com forward slash home forward slash aut. That's journals.sagepub.com forward slash home forward slash aut. Mm-hmm.